You guys doing well? Sounds like it. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Psalms 27. 27th Psalm. Whoops. How do you turn this off? How do you turn that off? That's... What's that? Oh, there you go. Thanks. Make sure you turn your phones off. There you go. Thank you. Thanks, Ryan. Psalm 27. We're doing theology here on Sunday mornings. We're, uh, what is theology? Anybody? Study of God? Why do we need to study God? Because every one of our problems are rooted in the fact that we either don't know God or at that moment we have forgotten the God of the Bible and how much he loves us and he's going to take care of us. And today we're talking about the fact that the God that you long for is beautiful. This is absolutely one of my favorite texts of Scripture. I just, I love this text. And uh, it's a good one. We're going to dive into it in a moment. But let me ask you a couple questions. What is your strategy for crisis? What is your strategy for chaos and calamity? It's just a matter of time. You're going to be dealing with it. Everybody faces it. We're going to look, about, look at it and talk about that a little bit. What's the one thing that can get you through anything? That's what David is going to tell us. The one thing that will get us through anything. It's David's strategy for dealing with a full range of life's problems. So here's my thesis for this uh, study this morning and as we look at Psalm 27. A heart enthralled by the beauty and the glory of God is not only ruined for anything else, but prepared to face anything. I'm convinced of that. You hear me use this particular word. It's one of my favorite words, smitten. I don't get tired of hearing it. Hope, I don't get tired of using it. I hope you don't get tired of hearing it. Because it's true. That's the essence of the Christian life. It's that a heart smitten by the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is and what he's done for us that ruins you for anything else and prepares you to face anything in life. That's where we're headed. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's take a moment. Let's pray. And we're going to dive into this great text of Scripture, Psalm 27. Let's pray. God, we... Um, Father God, show us, we pray, show us your beauty and glory through the study of your word this morning. God, we pray that you would open blind eyes, revive dead hearts, give strength to the weak, heal the sick, comfort the brokenhearted, guide the confused, and satisfy our souls with your presence this morning, because in your presence is fullness of joy. Teach us, touch us, and transform our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, let's dive in. So Psalm 27, I'm going to try my best to not comment as we work through this text, because it's a good one. And Psalm 27, starting at verse 1, I mean, this is a text of Scripture that I have gone back to regularly, and I've used it so many times in my life uh, just to help me to get through real difficult times. And you'll see why when we read the first verse. I memorized this verse many, many years ago. And it says, Psalm 27, verse 1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Game over. Right there, baby. I mean, you learn that. <laughs> you just live in the reality that that verse, it's amazing. Let's read that verse together and aloud. You ready? Let's do it. Do it like we mean it, okay? 
because it's true. You guys ready? One, two, three. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Wow, that's powerful. Now, he's going to run the full range of issues and problems. And so we're going to talk about it. Let me continue to read here, verse 2. When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. Let's read verse 4 together and aloud. It's, it's the heart of this uh, text. This is the meat of it right here. One, two, three. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Wow. That is a rich text. That is an amazingly rich text. Let me continue reading. Notice what he says as a result of that. Notice the gazing upon the beauty of the Lord. Verse 5, for he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. So what do you have that prepares you for the day of trouble? We will all face those days of troubles. So here we go. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. So almost like he's got a song in his heart right in the midst of all of this stuff that's going on in his life. Verse 7, hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God, my salvation. What he's saying there, it's it's a little bit of repentance. He knows that he doesn't deserve the presence of God. He recognizes that. That's, those are words of repentance. And then he continues on. We'll talk about that. Verse 10, for my father and mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Nothing worse than to experience abuse within your home. And he says, even in the midst of that, the Lord will take me in. The Lord will heal me. The Lord will bring me in and love me. And bring the healing and the wholeness that I need. Verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries. For false witnesses have risen against me and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Notice what he says here at the very end. Verse 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Three things we're looking at as it relates to the beauty of God. What, why do we need the beauty of God? First question. Second question. What is the beauty of God? Third question. How do we get the beauty of God? How do we get it? How do we experience it? So the first question, why do we need the beauty of God? Here's your first fill in the blank. Because life can get really ugly. 
Life can get really ugly. I gave you a number of cross-references there. I want you to fill in the blank. Look up here. You need to know this. I don't know why people, a lot of times when they commit their life to Christ, they think that everything is going to be, you know, without pain or problems. That's nowhere in the Bible. Sometimes your pain and problems increase. And uh, so the Bible is very clear about that. The Bible nowhere promises us a painless or problem-free life. In fact, it actually almost guarantees that if we follow Christ, we'll probably experience more pain and problems. Sounds crazy, but that's, that's the truth of it. He did promise us his presence, his peace, and his power. And that's really what we're talking about here. But uh, David is giving us a full range of problems that can happen in our lives. He starts in verses 2 and 3 with armies and wars. Anybody here uh, recently have a... Uh, you know, an attempt made on your life to, that they were trying to murder you or to assassinate you in any way? Anybody here? I mean, it could be, you know, it could happen. It's, it's kind of an isolated case here in America, but it could happen if you're a police officer. I mean, you're, you put your life out on the line. We got police officers that attend here, and, which is really cool. Firefighters, they kind of put their life out on the line. Uh, we got military, Afghanistan. You know, when the guys and gals that are throughout the world, certainly they can probably relate. Most of us can't relate to, to the armies and the wars that surround us, that David is, is facing the risk of having his head put on a stake, you know, put up on a stake and have his head, lose his head and having armies surrounding him. And so he deals with these external problems. How bad can it get? Well, it sounds like it could get pretty bad. So he talks about that, but he runs the full range of issues and he goes from external problems to internal problems. Even if my, my family betrays me, my mom and dad betray me. So he runs the full gambit, the full range of problems that any of us could face. So in this category of external problems, we could put maybe physical problems. Maybe you were diagnosed with cancer. You're battling cancer. It could be financial problems. You can't get a job. You, you were booted out of your house. You lost your home. Could be spiritual. Just could be demonic. We have an adversary. We talked about that. He's going to do everything he can to keep you from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Jesus Christ. And uh, so it could be spiritual. So we have these enemies, but then there could be internal problems. I mean, just, just when you thought things were going to get really good, you know, you get married, okay? And you go, wow, this is going to be wonderful in every way. And uh, home sweet home. And it doesn't quite work out that way. And it seems sometimes those that are our greatest enemies can be those within our own home, our own lives. And when those that reject us that are closest to us, that seems to even hurt worse. I mean, sometimes we can handle it out on the job and in the marketplace and maybe even around church sometimes. Not, not usually, but it's, it's really hard. But to face rejection in our own home. And so he runs the full gamut. He goes through the whole extreme of what could happen to us. And so here's what we can learn from this is that whatever you're facing, it fits within this range that he's talking about. Here's another thing that we can learn is that if David faced the worst without fear, so can you. So let's learn what David wants to teach us about this. And here's what I'm going to do first of all. I kind of stumped the first service with this one, so let's just see if you guys are more awake. Not that they weren't awake, but they are morning people. They're the first ones here, so I don't know. I don't know what the deal is. I don't want to badmouth them too much because this is being taped right now and they'll probably come after me. I put my head on a stake, I guess. I don't know. But uh, here's the deal. Here's the question for you. 
Because this is what I love about Christianity. Christianity is not a denial of reality. But it's an embracing of God in the midst of reality. That's what this Psalm 27 is all about. That's what the whole Bible is about. And here's my question for you. What's the difference between using God to deny reality versus embracing God in the midst of our reality? You need to know the difference because you can actually hear teachings, and there's teachings here today. You can turn on the radio. Christians, churches out there, they will teach you how to deny reality uh, with God as opposed to embracing God in the midst of your reality. Major difference between the two. Major difference. You guys following me on that? That you guys can discuss that? I asked my son this last night, and boom, he came up with an answer just like that. It was really a great answer. He, he understood the difference. I go, wow, that's good. So let's see how well you guys do. And I'm going to do something I haven't done for all. I'm going to come out and walk out there with you guys just to kind of keep you awake, okay? It's been a while, so I'm going to keep you awake. Had a little fun with the first service, so look out. Wake up. I'm coming after you. Okay, so go ahead and discuss that. You guys remember what I just said? Oh, my goodness. You're just like the first service. Okay, now, Pastor Ray, what was that question again? Okay, let me, let me tell you what the question is here. What's the difference? And it's a tricky question. Most of us have no clue. That was not even on our radar when we came in this morning. And, and we've never even thought about it. You need to think about it. It makes a difference in your life. The difference between using God as a form of denying reality versus embracing God in the midst of your reality. You'll notice in this text, and he's talking about some really bad stuff. And in the midst of that, he says, he says something that, it, that you, you can see. There's a major difference in what he's saying here. And so you need to be thinking along those lines. And, and you need to ask yourself, do you do that? When you're facing something, are you just using God, you know, in a denial, form of denial of reality? Or are you embracing God fully in the midst of your reality? That's the question. What's the difference between the two? Go ahead and discuss it with the folks sitting around you. I'll give you two seconds. Okay, that's it. No, go ahead. I'll give you more than that. Okay, are you guys getting it? This is scary when the pastor comes out to the uh, audience and it's like, I can pick you guys out of the crowd. I can look at you. I can make sure you don't fall asleep. Okay, what are you guys coming up with? How about this group right up here? You guys got some answers? Okay, this, this row right here has got all the answers. Worshiping the God you want instead of the God that is. Okay, worshiping the God you want rather than the God who is. Good answer. That's a good answer. That's a good answer. Yeah, let's give me a hand. Good answer. So it's worshiping the God you want rather than the God who is. So that would be certainly your, it's a form of denial. You're kind of making God, you're defining God in your own, in your own image as opposed to uh, him defining us in, in his image and understanding it. And that's part of that. She's saying that that's part of the problem of the prosperity gospel that's, pre, that's prevalent in our society today. Okay. Making him to kind of fit into our life to here to serve us. Well, that pretty much, that answers the question. Let me go back up on stage. And uh, uh, no, that's, that was actually a good answer. Were you guys thinking along those lines, some of you? Some of you are going, yeah, praise God, I was. That's right, exactly what I was thinking. I was all over that. Okay, yeah, you were. You were. You guys have any other answers that would go along with that? Was that what you guys, you guys were kind of thinking that maybe? You guys, how about here? You got it all, all the way to the back. Shereen, what do you think? It's the Hebrew children. They stood in front of the furnace and said, God 
Oh. Yes. Yes. The three Hebrew dudes. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember what they said? Hey, our God can save us. But even if he doesn't, we win. That was their attitude. It was like it didn't make any difference. It didn't matter. If we get devoured by the fire, so what? Game over. We're going to be with him. If not, he can save us and, and we can... Either way, see, it's an either way. It doesn't matter. We've got him. We've got him. You guys are on the ball. I mean, those are good answers. That's exactly, that's, you guys are zeroing in. Yeah, let's give uh, Serena call, uh, a, a hand. That's, that's what I was trying to say. Okay, anything else coming to mind? Is it related to that? You guys, anything else you're thinking about right here? Oh. Right over here. Okay. Lay it on me. I think that with the denial part, like, some people think that with God and when you're a Christian, um, when you have God, there won't be any more struggles and trials. Okay. Well, that's with the denial part. That's so. the denial part. Yeah. But on the other hand, when you have God, that's how you can get through That's right. That's right. So she's saying that the denial part is that you think that when you committed your life to Christ, you're not going to have any more struggles. But that's not the reality of it. The fact is, is that you have God. Now you can get through any struggle that's almost kind of like, hey, bring on the struggles because I've got God. That's the attitude. Yeah, make my day. <laughs> Go ahead and make my day because i got God, okay? And that's the attitude. That's, that's the attitude that's uh, really cool. Yes, sir. Yes. I think one is seeking the hands of God. Oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that hurt. Um. One is seeking the hand of God. The other one is seeking the face of God. Did you notice in this text, he makes a distinction. He says, I seek his face. My heart says, seek his face. Seek his face. There's a difference between seeking the hand of God versus seeking the face of God. And so that's good. Man, you guys are all over it. Good stuff. Did you want to add to that? Denial is insanity and calling God insanity. Denial is insanity. You're just doing the same thing. They just kept circling the mountain, wandering around in the wilderness, kind of an unbelief kind of thing. Yeah, and then uh, following God, having God at the center of your life is sanity. Yeah, right on. Good stuff. Good stuff. Here's the deal. This is why these are good answers. So let me give you the kind of the psychology of it so that you guys understand it. Uh, let me hop up here to do that if I can. Oh, yeah. Oh. Okay, here's the psychology of it, is and it goes like this. What you believe, it's your beliefs about your circumstances that determines how you think, feel, and will respond in light of those circumstances. In other words, how you evaluate life's circumstances, the things that are happening to you, determines how you will think, feel, and respond to those circumstances. So... A form of denial, and using God as a form of denial, is when people say, hey, think positive thoughts. Come on, you can think better thoughts than that. You need to think positive thoughts. You know that. Or, you shouldn't feel like that. Jesus loves you. Or, you shouldn't be doing those things. That's really a nasty attitude that you have so much unforgiveness towards the people that hurt you. That's not very kind. You know, you need to not be like that. See, what, what you're dealing with You're focusing on behavior, behavioral modification, thoughts, feelings, and actions. You don't focus there. The focus is on the beliefs. 
You got to go deeper. You got to go deeper. The reason why people feel bad when things go down, for instance, we, we had a gal in the first service that she had lost her husband and they'd been married for 45 years. That's going to rock your world a little bit, but, but here's, the, here's the difference between her and someone else that maybe is ready to commit suicide after that. Why would someone be willing to commit suicide after the loss of their husband or the loss of a job or gets dumped by a lover or didn't get the promotion or got cut from the team? Why would they do that? Because that, that thing that happened to them was their everything. If it was their everything, then the, how the effect that it's going to have on their thoughts, feelings, and actions. So if you go to their thoughts, feelings, and actions and try to control that without going to their belief system that says, hey, this is my everything. No, that's not your everything. The reason why she's able to get through it, her name is Mary, And the reason why Mary's able to get through that is because God is her everything. And by the way, her husband committed himself to Christ the day before he died, which was pretty miraculous and pretty amazing. And that was just the hand of God. And and she knows that one of these days she'll be able to see him. But more importantly, Christ is her everything. And see, if you make anything other than God your everything, then when that... Anything that you've made your God, other than God, your everything, when that is being threatened, blocked, or lost, you're going to have the inordinate anxiety, anger, and depression that, that correlates with that. I teach that consistently, and that's, that's the thing. And so when you come alongside of someone, and I, I even wrote it down here, to tell someone to think, feel, and behave differently without dealing with the underlying beliefs is superficial and short-lived. The reason why you are thinking, feeling, and wanting to do bad things It's not that you, as I said, got dumped or didn't get the promotion or got cut from the team, but it's because that has become your everything. So you got to get down to the root. What is the most important thing in your life? Why do you do what you do? See, the goal of every battle, if the goal of every battle is your comfort and your happiness, then that's the wrong goal. The goal of every battle is not your comfort, but it's your character. It's not your your happiness, but it's your holiness that comes from God being your exceeding joy. That's Psalm 43. You see that. And and nowhere does he... By the way, if you're trying to pray, there's nothing wrong with praying for circumstance enhancement. God, please change my circumstances. Okay, I'm not going to think negative thoughts anymore. I'm not going to think any more negative thoughts. Here's the deal. And you've heard me share this before. This is actually from Tim Kelly. He says, the true God of your heart is what your thoughts effortlessly go to when nothing else is demanding your attention. So what am I saying? You deal with your God. What's the God of your heart? What's the God of your heart? So to tell people to deal with thoughts, feelings, and actions, they got to get down much deeper because thoughts, feelings, and actions are the result of your evaluation of your events in life. You've got to change your evaluation. God is for you, not against you. If you believe that, it makes a difference in every circumstance that you face. And it changes the way you think, feel, and behave in response to those circumstances. And, and certainly, that's a, that's a way of looking at your life to see where you are. You look at what you're thinking, what dominates your thoughts, what stirs your deepest emotions. What triggers your actions? Why are you behaving in a, in a nasty way towards these folks? It's because it's your, your, the way that you're evaluating. It's your belief system. It's your belief system. You get back to your belief system. And so that's what this text is about. It's phenomenal. So let me get, let's get to it. Here's the next point. So we need, why do we need the beauty of God 
because life gets really ugly because an experience of beauty is transforming in three ways. Now, let me show you what happens as a result when he gazes upon the beauty of the Lord. Look at verses 5 and 6. He says, for he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. There's, there's a sense of calmness. It's almost like, hey, he's got the basis covered. He's going to take care of me. And then look at the next verse, verse 6. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent. Stop there just for a minute. I think that first section, he's just talking about courage. My head will be lifted up above my enemies. It's like, I can walk around with confidence. But check out the next part of that verse. He says, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. And I will sing and make melody to the Lord. There's almost like a song in his heart. In the midst of all these threats that surround him, there's a joy in his heart, there's celebration. He's got calmness, courage, celebration in the midst. So it's an embracing, so it's an embracing of God in the midst of reality. God, this is really, life sucks right now. It's really bad. Things aren't going very well. But God, you're bigger than all that and you're my everything. Not this thing that's being threatened or lost or blocked. Not this thing. It's you that I want more than anything. And if I've got you, I can handle anything. That's the point. That's it. And so, because an experience of beauty is transforming in three ways. There's a gal, Elaine Scarry, wrote a book, uh, 1999, Harvard English professor. It's called On Beauty and Being Just. And I think that she really shares some really good insight here on what beauty does. And see if you cannot relate to what she says here. First thing is that beauty creates community through the joy of praise. I mean, when you see something beautiful, beautiful sunset, you're wanting to tell everybody, hey, check this out. That's wonderful. That looks good. Or you're eating something you really enjoy. Oh, this is good. So you're wanting to share that with others. That's what makes for fan clubs. You get a group of people that otherwise have nothing in common, but because they have this fan club around, you know, maybe it's a certain car. You got car clubs or birds or certain, certain movie stars or rock stars or athletic stars. And, and that's what brings fan clubs together. So it's first, beauty creates community through the joy of praise. Second, beauty infuses hope through the conviction of meaning. When you see something beautiful, it gives you a, a sense like, hey, there's more to life. There's something more to life. In other words, life, there's something intuitively that it says this to us, that life is not a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. That's a line out of William Shakespeare's Macbeth. There's a sense of meaning in life because of the beauty that you're experiencing. Here's the third one. Third, beauty gets you out of your self-absorption. I'll bet everybody here could tell me of certain uh, music that you like listening to. When you're kind of in a down mood, you'll listen to certain kinds of mood, mood elevating kind of music. Or you watch movies. You got certain movies that you just can't watch over and over and over again. Or certain restaurants or vacation spots. Why? Because they're a place of rest and relaxation and recharging. Because they do what? Beauty gets you out of your self-absorption. Can you relate to that? Show of hands. Yeah. There's a place that we go every year for vacation. It's over in San Diego, Oceanside. And man, it's one of those places, just right there on the beach. We watch the sun. We walk out every night and watch the sunset, drink coffee, have sweatshirt on in the summer when it's 150 here. We're over there and it's like, it's like 60 degrees on the beach. We're going, oh, we love this. Go, 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 go. A little more coffee. It's just like, oh, it takes us out of ourselves. Just captivated by the beauty. Here's the next thing. Why do we need the beauty of God? Third thought, because any beauty short of God doesn't completely satisfy 
And that's good. I like going on vacations. There's certain kinds of music that I listen to, but I need to follow the sunbeam to the sun. He's the creator of all beautiful things. He's the giver of all good things. And so, ultimately, if I just stick with that and I make that my ultimate thing, I'm going to crash and burn. Romans 1, 18 through 32 make that, makes that pretty clear. Let me just summarize it. It says that uh, what we typically do, this is our sinful nature, we exchange the truth of God for a lie and we worship and serve created things more than the creator. And rather than to allow that to be a gift from God and a pointer to God, we make that our God. And it creates all kinds of problems. In fact, here's some of the problems that it creates. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but you need to know this. There's a guy by the name of, uh, he was a sociologist. He is a sociologist, Todd Gritland. This was a quote from Ted... uh, Tim Keller on beauty, and he says, any beauty other than God that, that you make the ultimate in your life will lead to elitism, oppression, obsession, and exclusivity. And then he goes on, he says, such as porn. Think about porn just for a minute. Such as porn, which has to do with beauty. They don't put ugly women on those pictures. has to do with beauty that has led to, listen to this, elitism, oppression, obsession, exclusivity. Is that not true? You know it is. You know it is. It's idolatry. It's a God. And elitism, yeah, if you don't look a certain way, ladies, you're out of luck. That's an, that's an elitist kind of mindset. If you don't look like the uh, magazine cover gals. Oppression, yeah. Women like that are oppressed. There's an obsession by the guys that are attracted to that because it requires more and more. The initial high doesn't last, so there's this obsession. There's an exclusivity, kind of in their own little circles, in their own little clubs. In a society where that much emphasis is placed on female beauty, you will have women with eating disorders. Is that not what we have? Yep. And men who objectify women and marginalize women and abuse women that's coming from objectifying women it's coming from a mindset that's taking something that that God intended to be a gift and a pointer to him and we've made it our god and so there's all sorts of abuses by the way yeah within the within the context of marriage my wife is the is the standard men your wife is the standard of beauty you look to her for your standard of beauty. And so, but this is what it creates. It creates all sorts of problems. And so, eating disorders, men who objectify women and, and marginalize women who don't live up to the standard. And it's not, it's not much different than what the Nazis were known for being connoisseurs of art and beauty, therefore denigrating other cultures, actually annihilating other cultures. Of course, other examples would be the clothes you wear, the cars you drive, the homes you live in, the music you listen to, all different forms of art, all leading to elitism, oppression, obsession, and exclusivity. It's rampant in America today, all of what I just said. And it's because we exchange the truth of God for a lie. We worship and serve created things more than the creator. These things were meant to be gifts from God and pointers to God. So what is the beauty of God? So that's why we need beauty, the beauty of God. What is the beauty of God? I'm going to have you do something else real quick. You can discuss it with the folks. We kind of do this sometimes. It's been a while since I've had you do a lot of this, so 
We'll do it twice here today, kind of like a small group. Turn to the folks next to you and tell them what your favorite dinner and dessert is. Just kind of describe it a little bit. You can go into some detail with that. What's your favorite dinner and dessert? Real quick, do that. Okay, you guys ready? So how many want to just close the service right now and go out for uh, lunch, huh? Yeah, that's what I thought. I should have been, uh, shouldn't have not done that. But uh, how many like eating uh, breakfast for dinner? Anybody? Breakfast for dinner? It's good stuff, huh? Yeah, that's good stuff. Last night we had fajitas, which was really good, and then we chased it with... uh, we had uh, Texas sheet cake. You guys know what that is? It's kind of like a brownie with, uh, coated with uh, like chocolate, like fudge. Yummy. But we didn't stop there. Loaded it up with some ice cream. It was sugar-free ice cream. Come on. It's so that we could load up on the chocolate and the caramel on top of that. Ooh. And then the whipped cream. Don't tell my wife. Uh, so what were you doing as I was explaining that to you and what were you doing as you were explaining that to each other this is what you were doing you were worshiping you were adoring you were giving glory to whatever your favorite meal is anybody like uh, Mexican food Mexican food Mexican food three times a day seven days a week oh not that much my gut hurts Uh, Italian food okay how many just, just flat out like hamburgers, hamburgers, good old hamburgers? How many last week, was it last week or the week before last that I talked about Five Guys and you went to Five Guys afterwards? Okay, there's, <laughs> okay, just, just curious. What are we talking about here? What are we doing? This is called adoration. It's worship. Remember, we talked about worship. Worship is, the uh, English word is uh, worth, value, shape. Whatever we worship shapes our life. Nothing wrong with what we were doing right there, but when that becomes the true God of your heart is what your thoughts effortlessly go to when nothing else is demanding your attention, then that's when it becomes idolatry, when it drives your life, when it's the essence of why you live. Nothing wrong with any of that as long as you continue to follow the sunbeam up to the sun and you say, hey, this is a gift from God. Praise God for this gift. And this is a gift from God and it's it's meant to be a pointer to God. Nothing wrong with those things. But when you begin to learn that it's in the beholding, it's in the beholding of the beauty and the glory of God that you become whole, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that, uh, then then when you begin to go around and you talk about him and when you spend time in prayer, it's the, it's the best part of your day as you behold him and as you're enjoying him and you're saying, God, you are so faithful. 
In fact, God, I can't believe that I've got this job. I can't believe that I've got this wife. I can't believe i got this home. I can't believe that you've done all these things for me. God, thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness. Oh, and by the way, thank you for your omnipresence. You're always with me. You'll never leave me or forsake me, and I thank you for that. So what are we doing there? You're just beholding. You're beholding his glory. You would take a scripture like this and, and, and read through it and pray, back, pray it back. The Lord is my light and my salvation. God, thank you for being my light. Man, I don't have to stumble through the dark. Oh, God, thank you that you are my light and you're my salvation. You saved me. You've forgiven me of all my sins. And not only that, you're taking my life. And as I give you the pieces, you're putting them back together. <laughs> and then one of these days when I take my last breath on earth, I'll take my first breath with you. Woohoo! What are you doing? You're beholding. You're savoring. You're enjoying. That's, that's, what, that's what David is doing in Psalm 27. And so... When you make him your everything, then nothing will make you inordinately anxious, angry, and depressed. To behold him is to become whole. So let's walk through this verse. Verse 4 says, what is the beauty of God? It is a sustained and profound sense of the reality of God's presence. In verse 4, he says, one thing I ask, this is what I seek. So if I were to ask you, what is the one thing that you ask consistently from God? If I were to read a transcript of your prayer... Would you even have a transcript of your prayer? I mean, I mean, not literally, but would there be a transcript? In other words, do you even pray? And if you do, what do you pray? What's the one thing you're asking for? This was the one thing. He does not, he's not asking for God to do circumstance enhancement. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. But what he's doing is this is the one thing. If I got this one thing... God, I'm only asking for one thing. If I have this one thing, what's the one thing? One thing I ask, this is what I seek. He's not just asking, but he's seeking. He's looking. He's pursuing passionately. One thing I ask, this is what I seek. That I may, what does he say? That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Well, nobody can live in the house of the Lord all the days of their life. You couldn't live in the temple. What is he saying then? The temple was where the presence of God is. And so what he was saying is that I want the presence of God in my life 24-7. That's what he's saying. I want your presence to be so real to me. I just know you're there. Now, now you've heard me say this many times before here at Desert Breeze. Is that the gospel is intellectually sound. You know, try to, try to prove it wrong. Try to prove that there wasn't a man by the name of Jesus. Try to prove that this book isn't real. It is. Okay? So it's intellectually sound, but it's existentially satisfying. In other words, it's one thing to know that God is always with you. It's another to have a sustained and profound sense of the reality of God's presence on your heart. Major difference. Major difference between two. Oh, yeah, yeah, God's, God's always with you. No, when was the last time you had a sense that he is there? He's here. He's here. He's here this morning. He's with you. When you're, when you're praying and you're pouring out your heart to him. He is there with you. He will never, ever leave you or forsake you. He's wanting a sense of that, that it goes from concept to reality deep within his heart. I wish I lived with more of that reality. I had a sense of that this morning as I was preparing and I was praying and thinking and I just, I had that sense that God is with me. He's here with me as I was, as I was eating my, uh, my eggs and bacon and uh, my breakfast this morning and, and my toast and it was good. And I just had that sense like, wow, God, you are here. That was, it was so important to me because then we faced a lot of crazy issues here on the campus as we were kind of working through some details. And, and uh, there's that sense of his presence 
a sense of his presence. And there's kind of a progression that we have to work through, that when we first come to God as Christians, we have to progress from ATM God to Abba Father God. You know what I'm saying? The ATM kind of God. And so, so it kind of goes, it goes from talking at God, that's the first word, we kind of parrot prayers to talking to God, where we start using our own words, revealing our heart, to listening to God, where it becomes more two-way communication. You really have a sense that he's speaking to you and guiding you and directing you to just being with God, which is the richest by far. You just know he's with you. He just knows he's there. And, and, there, and what that does, it just brings a sense of peace. It's not a denial of reality. You know you've got to face some really tough issues. You've got some tough decisions ahead. But he is with you. That's what David is asking for. He, he just wants, not a concept. I know it. I've been taught it a lot of times. God, I desperately want to have a sense of my heart. By the way, that's supernatural. You can't force that. You can ask for it. You can seek it as he's doing. But it's something that supernatural has to happen within your life. Here's the next thing, is that it is to be enthralled, captivated, and enamored by the Lord in and of himself. Did you notice what he said? He says, one thing I ask, this is what I seek, that I may, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, and to gaze, he's using a, a sensory word, experiential word, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Now, I, I recognize that when people first come to God, they usually come uh, because God is useful. But you know that you're beginning to make some major progress when God goes from being useful to being pleasurable. You can kind of tell when God is just useful for people. These people come, oh yeah, I'll come to church, I'll check it out. Maybe he'll help me with my business, help me with my family, help me. Certainly he will. But if that's the primary reason why you're coming to God, you're missing the big E on the I chart of Christianity. Because when you begin to, you, you've got to move from a fact that he's... Uh, He's helpful that he's, because there's a major difference between God being useful and God being pleasurable. It's, it's when you begin to go, wait a minute, uh, it doesn't matter what happens to me. If I've got God, I've got everything that I need. That's when you've moved from he's useful to, wow, he's pleasurable. I love just gazing upon his beauty. I love spending time with him. It is to find that all of his attributes are absolutely excellent, endlessly desirable, and more profoundly satisfying than anything in life. A heart enthralled by the beauty of God is, is not only ruined for anything else, but is prepared to face anything in life. One glimpse of his beauty, and you are consumed by a desire to see more of him and to say more about him. One glimpse of his beauty, and checking the church box, just kind of going through the motions, is no longer an option. Pleasure-seeking is no longer needed. I mean, because you're captivated by his beauty. There's nothing more satisfying than his beauty and his glory and experiencing that. Here's the next one. It is to seek and consider and reflect on the will of the Lord or the word, the word of the Lord. The verse 4 where it says to inquire in his temple, the word inquire means to seek an oracle. And the idea here is to go to the priest asking for God's will in regards to a decision. So it's basically, in our, in our, in our uh, way of interpreting it to apply to our lives would be Bible study. So what I do is that I'll take verses, and it basically is talking about the word means, and some of your translations actually says what? Meditate? Anybody have meditate there? Yeah. 
So it actually means meditate. So this is what meditate is. It's taking a text like this. Now think if you took a text like this and you know the context. He's running the full gamut of issues and problems. And he says, one thing I ask, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To gaze, oh God, let me just throughout this day, gaze upon your beauty. Let me have a sense of your presence in my life. So you begin to meditate, you pray it back, you begin to think about it. It begins to get a hold of your heart. It goes deep in your life. And it's usually after I've recited that verse 20, 30, 40 times throughout the day as I'm working through navigating the issues of my day. Wow, boom, the verse just comes alive in my heart. I begin to realize, yes, yes, God is here with me. He loves me. That's what he's talking about here. See, it's, it's studying God's word. You're not looking for life lessons when you pick up this book and study through it. It's daily Bible reading that is craving for a glimpse of God that satisfies your soul. Okay, I got another life lesson. Let's see if I can apply this to my life today. That's, that's not what the Christian life is about. It's about an encounter with the one who gives you the life lessons, who's going to lead you in your life, will never leave you or forsake you, loves you. That's what he's talking about. Let me give you a quick story, and then we're going to wrap it up with the last three points. It's pretty easy from here on. We'll wrap up this section with this, uh, with this story, famous missionary story. In 1851, Alan Gardner, an English missionary, was on his way to South America to open a mission station. And in 1851, if you went on the mission field from England to South America, you've left everything behind. You've left your comfort, safety, family, career. But the interesting thing about his story is that he never made it. He was shipwrecked on an island by the name of Tierra del Fuego where he died of starvation and thirst because no one came to rescue him. Later, his body was found along with the journal that he had been keeping. He was, he was dying of hunger and thirst, which is a horrible way, way to, to, to die. But his last journal entry was from Psalm 3410. Now check this out. This is really interesting. This is what it says, Psalm 3410. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall lack no good thing. And under that he wrote these words, I am overwhelmed with the goodness of of the Lord while he was dying of hunger and thirst. Why wasn't he mad at God? I mean, after giving up everything that he gave up. Why wasn't he shaking his fist at God? God wasn't useful to him. God was beautiful to him. That's why. He had the main thing he wanted, and that was God. God wasn't a means to an end. God was the end. And if he had God, he had everything he needed. He could get through anything. Amazing story. That's what David is talking about here. Now, how do we get that? How do we move to that place? And there's three things, three things that we can do, and I think we get this from this text. First of all, we need to repent. Repent of your disordered loves. 
And as I stated in verse 7, he says, Be gracious to me, verse 9, hide not your face in anger. Verse 11, teach me your way. Lead me on a level path. This is not, he's not seeking comfort. He's seeking spiritual progress. He says, come on, God, I want to progress. I want to make sure that I don't fall prey to, to having this disordered love, that I would love anything more than I love you. Now, this isn't explicit in the text. It's implied because we know that all sin is really, sin is what we do when we don't, don't uh, don't find our deepest pleasure in God. Uh, sin is what we do when we are not satisfied with God. And our hearts are prone to wonder. Our hearts are prone to substitute God with anything and everything. A couple things real quick, just to show you how I've worked this out in my life as God is working with me. Um, you guys remember the uh, 81, this last week, 81-year-old woman from Rhode Island that won the $336 million lottery? Anybody? She's my aunt and... Uh, I'm going to be reading my letter of resignation right now. I'm kidding. That's not true. She's not my aunt. But I did go, wow. That way, in fact, she had the numbers in her Bible. And then they say, ooh, it was her, like her, her lucky Bible. I got a lucky Bible, but I've never found any numbers in mine. Give me one of those, please. But anyway, I had one of those moments where I go, what I could do with $336 million dollars? We could build churches, help people. Woo! All in the name of Jesus. I had one of those moments where I just kind of like, and my heart did kind of go like, woo! <laughs> kind of went, woo! Does your heart ever do that? Mine does. But I kind of went, woo! That would, whoa! I kind of got a little excited. And then all of a sudden, I had a sense that the, that the Holy Spirit said to me, uh, Ray, that excitement that you have for that, if you had a clue of who Jesus was and all that he's done for you, your excitement for him would go through the, through the roof. It would not even come close to your heart or your desire for that. And I, had to, and I did kind of a course correction. I go, yeah, you know what? You're right. I'm not living in the reality of the wealth that I have in him. 336 million, that's a drop in the bucket compared to what I have in you, Jesus. Thank you so much. Thank you for that reminder. And I came back and I brought my heart, so I repented in that moment, and there's probably nothing wrong with that as long as we can continue to make course corrections, but if I was fascinated with that and captivated and think, I'm going to get wealthy, I'm going to start playing the lottery, don't do that. But, uh, but I mean, you start, there's things that get a hold of your life. It was in that moment, I, I crossed paths with a guy a number of years ago that stabbed me in the back, and he hurt me deeply. And uh, I thank God that over the years I've been healed up from that, because in the past when I would have crossed paths with him, I would have, like it says in uh, Romans 12 where it says to rejoice with those that rejoice and grieve with those that grieve. Well, I kind of would flip the verse and when he would rejoice, I would grieve and when he would grieve, I would rejoice, okay? That's how you know, that's how you know that you've got some anger inside of your heart and you've got some envy. But I didn't have it. I was able to look into my heart and say, how do I feel about this guy? And I loved him, but I knew it didn't come from me. It came from the work of God. So, and there's other times though that when I do have that anger, and I have that envy, and I have to do that, wait a minute, what's most important to me? Why, why am I thinking that they have blocked something in my life or kept me from getting something that I really can't live without? I've got everything I need, it's in you. And so I, you do those course corrections, you repent. And really, repentance is a change of attitude and action towards sin. And it's, you repent, you change your attitude and action towards sin, and you turn towards Christ and you find your delight in Him. That's what it is. That's what He's doing. 
And then rearrange your schedule to make prayer and Bible study a practice. Because that's what he's saying. One thing I ask, that's disciplined prayer. And then when he says to inquire in the temple, that's Bible study. Now my wife had something to say a couple weeks ago. I was talking with her and she said something. It was actually at our, our couple's class. And I was telling her that sometimes people will say, well, I'm not getting anything out of Bible study. You know, I'm not getting anything out of Bible study. I'm just, I'm not going to do it anymore. And she said this, it was pretty profound. You've probably heard it before, but it's really a great statement. She says, uh, well, you're certainly not going to get anything out of not studying your Bible. Here's the deal. There's certainly times that you study the Bible, you're not getting anything out of it. I understand that. But you've got to be like Elijah, uh, Elijah in 1 Kings 18, he built the altar and God brought the fire. You can't bring the fire, but you can build the altar. He's saying, one thing I ask, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. He's seeking it, he's pursuing it, he's praying, he's asking, he's building the altar, but he's expecting God to bring the fire. That's the supernatural part. And I don't always experience it, but man, there are times when I do, I want more. I want to experience more of his presence in my life. But I keep building the altar so that he can bring the fire. The things that we value, we prioritize. The things we prioritize, we practice. And then here's the last. Remind yourself that God is more willing to show you his beauty than you are to seek it. I mean, it's throughout this chapter that that David is not overcoming God's reluctance, but he's laying hold of God's willingness Verse 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Verse 5, he will hide me. He will conceal me. He will lift me on a rock. Verse 9, oh, you who have been my help. Verse 10, for my father and mother have forsaken me, but you have taken me in. Verse 13, I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the day of the living. I mean, it's amazing. So how do we know that for fact? What's the ultimate? Well, that's what we're going to do right now. We're going to take communion. The ultimate of this, that we could take this to the bank is that Jesus died on the cross for us. Would you bow your heads with me? Take a moment. I'm going to show you after this prayer a quick video. And then we're going to have three stations here this morning for communion. And you'll walk up and you will take the bread that represents the broken body of Jesus and the cup that represents his shed blood. And you'll take the bread and dip it in the cup. And only do that if you're a believer. If you're not, you can become a believer this morning by putting your faith in Jesus. And we would uh, certainly invite you to do that. Would you bow your heads with me? Just take a moment. I want us to think about what we just talked about, and I just want to pray through something here that I think that it's kind of the last statement that's on your notes, is that Jesus Christ, who was absolutely beautiful, how do we know that he wants us to show his beauty, and what's the greatest expression of his beauty? The cross. And that we know that he wants us to show us his beauty because of the cross, and so he wants us to live in the reality of that. And Jesus Christ, who was absolutely beautiful, gave up his beauty and became radically deformed and disfigured on the cross. Isaiah 52, 14 said that he was disfigured and marred beyond human likeness. So that we who are spiritually ugly and disfigured because of sin can become absolutely beautiful. Think about that just for a moment. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Absolutely beautiful. And the more you begin to understand that, you realize that you have nothing to prove or to lose. In Christ, you are beautiful in the eyes of the only one in the universe that matters. Cease striving. You don't need to be motivated by fear or pride anymore. You're motivated by a heart smitten by the beauty of Christ. 
So your identity is in him. God, help us to learn that this morning. Help us to realize that. Help us to see that we have all that we need in you. Help us to learn what it means to gaze upon your beauty even now as we take communion. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to have you watch this video. It's uh, from the Passion of the Christ. It's pretty hard hitting, but it's to kind of set the tone because this is that season as we head towards Easter. I want you to kind of be thinking about that. We have a Good Friday service coming up here in a few weeks. And so be thinking about this, but uh, feel free to come up and take communion. And then after you're finished, you can sit and relax and reflect on what we talked about or, or you can exit, but do that quietly if you would, please. God bless you.